I hope you received my little parcel by J. Bond on Wednesday evening, my dear Cassandra, and that you will be ready to hear from me again on Sunday, for I feel that I must write to you today. I want to tell you that I've got my own darling child from London on Wednesday. I received one copy sent down by Faulkner with three lines from Henry to say that he had given another to Charles and sent a third by the coach to Godmersham. Miss B dined with us on the very day of the book's coming and in the evening we fairly set at it and read half the first volume to her. Prefacing that, Having intelligence from Henry that such a work would soon appear, we had desired him to send it whenever it came out, and I believe it passed with her unsuspected. Jane Austen, describing the delivery of her book Pride and Prejudice, January 1813. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secronddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 43, Ostentatious. On July 7, 1809, at the beginning of the second decade, four British women, ranging in age from 70 to 33, moved into a small cottage in Chawton, Hampshire, which was near but not the same as the great manor estate known as Chawton House. Three of these women were fairly unremarkable in historical terms and are known chiefly for their association with the fourth, the youngest among them, and for whom Chawton Cottage is forever associated. Jane Austen, perhaps the most beloved novelist in the history of the English language, had by 1809 already been working on several of the books that would eventually make her one of the giants of literary history, but she had not yet been published. That would come in the new decade that was just about to begin, and which would be the last in Jane Austen's life. But that decade, the second decade, the 18-teens, would see the publication of the six novels that made her immortal. Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Emma, Northanger Abbey, and Persuasion. These novels were either written entirely or revised and finished within the modest walls of Chawton Cottage, which is now known as Jane Austen's House and Museum. The gestalt of Jane Austen and her work is nothing less than a cultural sensation, In fact, I would say that the phenomenon of fandom around Jane Austen resembles nothing less than an early 19th century version of the fan cult surrounding Star Trek. The world spun by Jane's carefully chosen words is an entire universe unto itself, resembling the real world of Georgian and Regency-era England, but also sort of idealized, romanticized, and satirized. 
A surprising amount of what we think of when we think about England in this era is not really what it was like, but what we imagine it to have been through the lens of Jane Austen's novels. For that reason alone, Jane Austen deserves to be remembered as one of the giants of the history of the second decade, and she definitely deserves to have an episode of this podcast dedicated to her. But there's also a sort of peril associated with this task, divining the reality of life in the English countryside in the 18-teens and separating it from that idealized world that Jane Austen spun so beautifully and brilliantly in her novels, which are even more beloved in our own time than they were when they were published. But to ground this episode where it should be grounded, in historical context, let's take stock of where Jane Austen sits in the rich tapestry of the second decade. When Jane, her mother Cassandra Lee, her sister, also named Cassandra, and their friend Martha Lloyd, moved into Chawton Cottage in early July 1809, Abraham Lincoln was a baby six months old, living in a log cabin in Kentucky. James Madison, President of the United States, had been in office for four months. Napoleon Bonaparte, the Emperor of France, was at the height of his power and the beginning of the long fuse that would burn down toward his disastrous war with Russia in 1812. Thomas Jefferson was enjoying, if you could call it that, the first months of his retirement at Monticello, where the financial picture was still quite bleak. On the very day that Jane and her family moved into Chawton Cottage, William Jackson Hooker, the English botanist, was on his eventful trip to Iceland, which I profiled in episode 31 of this series. Nothing that happened in the second decade happened in isolation, though it might seem that way at first. Jane Austen's world does seem insular and closed, but that's only if you choose to view it that way. As you know, we rarely view things that way on this show. To put it in perspective, and to repeat a thought experiment I've done previously on this podcast, let me tell you that although Jane Austen lived and died more than 200 years ago, mathematically the chances are very high that whoever you are listening to my voice right now, you know someone who knew someone in their lifetime who was alive during Jane Austen's lifetime. Seen this way, Jane's wonderful novels seem not so much like dispatches from a world long vanished than strings that connect us today to a collective past that many of us share, if not in memory, certainly in imagination. Since the turn of this century, numerous movies, plays, and television productions have adapted Jane's novels and stories. She even appeared as a character in a video game in 2013. So the lingering shadow of Jane Austen and her work looms large over our modern popular culture. Why not understand a little bit about her life as it was really lived in that crucial decade that, as I've said many times before, helped build the modern world? Stories like this are why this podcast exists, the central mission of what I set out to accomplish. So pour yourself a glass of wine, settle down on the couch with your favorite Signet Classics paperback of Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility, and get ready to travel back to Regency-era England, where life, at least among a certain strata of society, was, pun intended, ostentatious. Good evening. I have a couple of announcements before we get into the subject of tonight's show. I'm proud to announce that I have a new book coming out, believe it or not, my first nonfiction book. It's called The Warmest Tide, and the subtitle is How Climate Change is Changing History. A release date is not yet set for it, but it's going to be sometime this summer, 2019. 
My primary professional work is in the field of climate change. I'm a speaker and consultant as well as a historian, and my academic expertise is on the history of climate change. As many of you know, this show in fact got its start from my academic career, so it's closely linked to climate change. The subject of my dissertation was the cold decade, the 18-teens, which were characterized by a period of temporary volcanic-induced climate change as a result of the eruptions of Mountain X in 1809, I call it Mountain X, and Tambora in 1815. I've mentioned these events numerous times on this show. My study of naturally caused climate change in the past led perhaps inevitably to the study of human-caused climate change, also known as anthropogenic global warming, in the present. Climate change is affecting every person in every country in the world today. And climate change is already changing human history in very profound ways. Everything is going to change as a result of global warming. The way we live, where we live, how we measure economic value, even our religious and spiritual worlds. I talk about all these issues in The Warmest Tide, and I use my study of history to try to make sense of how human society is now responding to the daunting challenge of climate change, and what history can tell us about what might be coming in the future. It's historical thinking projected forward, and I think it's going to be a great book. It's a short read, a lively read, and I hope you all enjoy it and learn from it. Again, the title is The Warmest Tide, and it's not out yet, but will be coming out soon. I'll give you some more updates as the release of the book gets closer. With that said, I suppose I should say something about the other book, the one based on scripts from the first season of this podcast. That book will be titled Second Decade, The Long Dawn of the 19th Century, and I announced it a very long time ago. I am still working on that book, and I uh, think so long as I'm getting the warmest tide out there, I may as well get moving on the Second Decade book again. That book is almost finished. It has been almost finished for a long time, although the last time I worked on it intensively was right before I got sick, and that kind of put me off from it. But I hope to finish it in the next few months and bring it out not long after The Warmest Tide. So, that's the book news. I suppose it's fitting that I should be talking about my own books in this, an episode about a writer. As we launch into the story of Jane Austen, let me make a confession. I am not a fan of her novels. Now, that's not to say that I dislike them, or that I dislike Jane Austen in any way as a historical subject. That's not the case. But I don't come at the subject from the standpoint of a fan. Her novels clearly were milestones in the development of English literature, and they rightly deserve the acclaim they've gotten for 200 years. But I'm not a Janeite by any means. Nevertheless, I admire Jane Austen for a lot of reasons, chief among them the fact that her life story, literarily speaking, is kind of a rags-to-riches tale. An unassuming middle-class English girl, not rich by any means, not the most educated, though she was educated about as well as men allowed women to be educated in the early 19th century. But this woman rose to the ranks of one of the great giants of literary history solely on her own talent. This story is in striking difference to the way literary classes, if you can call them that, often work, especially in the United States. Do we even still have a literati in America? Anyway, I'm talking about how the literati used to work in America, at least, most, though not all, people who achieve literary fame tend to be from an upper class of elites who moved in the same circles, writing for the New Yorker and such, and the class was sometimes hereditary. I'm thinking of the Van Doren literary family or the Benchleys, uh, New England patricians who summer on Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard, those kinds of people. 
It would be one thing if Jane Austen came from the early 19th century English equivalent of a literary dynasty like that, or if she was born in one of the great manor houses that dotted the countryside at that time, but she wasn't, and in a way that's one of the things that's most remarkable about her. Jane Austen was born in December 1775, the year the American Revolution began. Her father, George Austen, was a clergyman, the rector of the parishes at Dean and nearby Stevenson, to which George and his wife Cassandra moved in the summer of 1768. Cassandra, Jane's mother, there's more than one Cassandra in our story, so pay attention, she was from the Lee family of Warwickshire. The Lee family was pretty wealthy, but George Austen wasn't. And the kind of wealth the Austens had is actually important to how Jane's worldview and her writing developed. The branch of the Lee family to which Cassandra belonged, and which joined in marriage to the Austens, was socially a fairly high class in Georgian England, at least considering the class structure in general, but it was at the very lowest echelon, income-wise, of that class. Because these people weren't really poor, I mean, they weren't peasant farmers tilling their own land, or laborers working in artisanal shops in the cities, or something like that, they had a social life to maintain, but the only practical means of upward mobility, both for women and for men, was by marriage. An engagement between a man and a woman in this particular class in England at this time was as much and often more a business transaction than a personal one. The Austens had seven children, which wasn't that unusual for a family like this. James was born in 1765, George in 1766, he was what we would today call a special needs child, Edward 1767, Henry 1771, Cassandra, who was to become Jane's lifelong best friend, born 1773, Francis, 1774, and Jane herself in 1775. It's kind of exhausting just to rattle off the list. I'm going to skip over most of Jane's early life. The biography I used principally for the development of this episode, I suspect, has a lot in common with other biographies of Jane Austen, in that it focuses a lot on her formative years, including her school years and her early romance. Uh, I'm focused much more, as you might imagine, on her later life in the second decade. Suffice it to say that Jane and her sister Cassandra did attend various schools outside the home, including a fairly prestigious one at the time, the Abbey House School in Reading. They didn't stay there too long or at any of the other schools they went to. Either illness or lack of money, mostly lack of money, proved insurmountable problems, and by the end of 1786, when she was 11, Jane and Cassandra were back home in Steventon with their mother. Further education would be in the home, as it was for most women in Georgian England. It does seem clear, though, that a literary bent ran through the Austen family. James, the oldest son, attended Oxford, and he started a satirical literary magazine called The Loiterer in 1789. The Loiterer was printed and distributed in London by a man named Thomas Egerton, who becomes very important later on. Jane started writing at age 12. Her first work was sort of a joke history of England, illustrated with weird but charming little cartoons drawn by her sister Cassandra. At age 14 in 1790, she wrote the first thing that can, with a little stretching, be called anything like a novel. It was called Love and Friendship, the word friendship is misspelled, and is basically a series of fictional letters between two female friends presenting a series of domestic adventures. The interesting thing about Jane's writing at this time was that even at 14, her tone was keenly and subtly satirical. This is the real spice of Jane Austen's writing a kind of sardonic wit about the vagaries of Georgian English society, 
and she was pretty, already pretty well advanced at this at a young age. To understand this, you kind of have to understand the development of the novel as a literary form. In 1790, the novel was a pretty new invention in literary and popular culture. Novels, long fictional narratives that weren't poetry and not intended to be acted out or spoken aloud, had a very particular form at this time. They almost always took the shape of a bunch of letters written between various characters, or by one character. The epistolary novel was far and away the dominant form of the time. Some early novels even tried to disguise the fact that they were fictional, with their authors pretending merely to be editors, presenting a packet of letters for publication for whatever reason, and insisting that everything in them was factual, or at least that the letters themselves were real. Because of this structure, pretending to be private, intimate communications between real people, novels were very well suited for discussing the subject matter of emotions, feelings, interpersonal relationships, and, of course, love. These were the novels of sensibility that Jane drew from and ultimately mocked in a subtle way in much of her work. Jane's writing in this early period seems to have been mostly for the amusement of members of her family. She'd write this stuff and then read it aloud to her sister, her mother, or others, nieces and such, which she had many, particularly in the evenings. In a century without Netflix, this was about as good a way to spend an evening as you could get. It's at this point in Jane's life story where we get to a subject I'm going to skip almost entirely over, that one romance, or quasi-romance, that we know she had in her life. Around the Christmas holidays of 1795, Jane met Thomas Lefroy, an English-born law student who happened to be visiting at Steventon. Vast geysers of ink have been spewed about this romance, if you can call it that, over the last two centuries. The figure of Tom Lefroy is regarded as supremely important in the annals of Jane Austen lore, because many historians and literary critics have suggested that he was the model for Austen's arch-hero, Mr. Darcy of Pride and Prejudice, or at least that her flirtation with him had something to do with her starting to write the novel for which she's most famous. What we do know is a little disappointing. Jane and Tom attended a few balls together that winter. She seems to have had the hots for him, and even mentions in a letter to Cassandra that she expects he'll propose. That might have been a satirical reference and not serious. But in January 1796, Lefroy left town pretty suddenly, and their romance didn't come to anything. And that's really about it. It's also not hard to see why he didn't propose to her. The Austins were broke. Lefroy had ten siblings to try to take care of and a whole bunch of other financial obligations. Marriage in the 1790s, as I said, was a financial transaction as much as an emotional union. It wasn't practical. Thus, no marriage. Jane, in fact, would remain a spinster for the rest of her life. She does seem to have begun working on a novel shortly after this, in 1796, originally entitled First Impressions which would eventually become Pride and Prejudice. Like her juvenile works, it was an epistolary novel. It's hard not to see, once you know about the Tom Lefroy situation, what Pride and Prejudice was really about. From its first lines, which were undoubtedly written later, probably in 1812, after Jane switched the book over from the epistolary format to third-person prose. Quote, It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighborhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he is considered the rightful property of someone or other of their daughters. End quote. Between 1796 and 1798, obviously a highly productive period in her life, 
Jane Austen wrote three novels, or at least three early drafts of what would eventually become, in the second decade, her novels. Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, and Northanger Abbey. All three had different titles and were all probably pretty different books than what was eventually published. In 1800, George Austen retired from the ministry and moved the family to Bath, England. They lived there until George's death in January 1805, left the family in even more precarious financial circumstances. In 1806, they moved to Southampton, sharing a house with Frank, who was by then an officer in the Royal Navy, and who would distinguish himself in several battles against the dwindling navy of Napoleon. Whereas the fortunes of Jane, Cassandra, and her mother, also named Cassandra, were kind of meager, another of Jane's older brothers, Edward, had quite a run of luck. He'd become friendly with Thomas and Catherine Knight, who did own one of those big manor houses I mentioned earlier, an estate in Hampshire called Chawton House, along with other properties. Thomas, who was an MP, member of Parliament, and his wife were childless. As early as 1779, when Jane was four, the Knights, who knew George Austen, began grooming Edward as a surrogate son. When he was 16, he was formally adopted, eventually changing his surname to Knight, and in 1794, he became the legal heir to Chawton House and the other Knight estates. Now that is a rags-to-riches story, and exactly the kind of plot device you'd find in one of Jane's novels. But this sort of thing did happen in Georgian England. In 1808, Edward's wife, Elizabeth, died. He was inconsolable. This event coincided with renewed money troubles of the Austin women, Jane and the two Cassandras, as rents in Southampton, driven high by the wartime economy, proved too much for them. Edward decided it was time to have the family near him, and so he gave over Chawton Cottage, formerly an inn and tavern, as a permanent home for his mother and sisters. It was not far from the grand manor of Chawton House, Martha Lloyd, who had long been associated with the Austin family since at least 1789, and who was deep friends with both Jane and the younger Cassandra, would live there too, ostensibly as the housekeeper. Understand that I'm vastly oversimplifying both the twists and turns of Jane Austen's life, and the complicated tapestry of relationships, both family relationships and friendships, that bound her to various other people. But these are the basic facts about how Jane Austen came to be at Chawton Cottage in the summer of 1809 and at the beginning of the next great phase of creativity and success in her life. The world was about to find out who Jane Austen was. Mysteries, hoaxes, folklore, conspiracy, and pseudo-history. Topics sometimes avoided by historians who don't want to normalize nonsense or draw attention to the blind spots in our knowledge of the past. But these are some of our most intriguing tales. The Lost Colony of Roanoke, The Man in the Iron Mask, The Princes in the Tower, The Battle of Los Angeles, The Turin Shroud. Stories like these fraught with ambiguities and falsehoods and suggesting alternate views of history, not only entertain, but also teach us to view the past and the present with a critical eye. Join me, Nathaniel Lloyd, as I delve into these stories on my podcast, Historical Blindness, and shine a light in the darker corners of the past. New episodes every other Tuesday, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and most podcast apps. 
what we know about the daily life of Jane Austen and the other women at Chawton Cottage in the second decade is at the same time mundane and fascinating. She began her day, in the words of one of her nieces, practicing music. Jane did play the piano and had some musical interests. She made breakfast about 9 a.m., a traditional English breakfast of tea with sugar and milk and toast. Most of the day the women spent doing needlework. Making and mending clothes was a big deal in the early 19th century and incredibly time-consuming. In the afternoons, often Jane and the younger Cassandra would go out to the nearby town of Alton, only a mile away, for shopping. They had no carriage, so they had to walk everywhere. The big meal of the day was in the mid to late afternoon. There was a garden at Chawton Cottage. Jane's mother worked in it daily, even though she was pushing 70. They also kept chickens on the property. Cooking the big meal was traditionally done before sunset, so the cooks wouldn't have to use candles in the kitchen. Candles were expensive. We know something about the food at Chawton Cottage because both Jane Austen and Martha Lloyd collected recipes and copied them into a book. I'm fascinated by the food of the second decade. So although hogs puddings, cabbage pudding, vegetable pie, and toasted cheese were apparently pretty boring and mundane foods for the time, they're pretty interesting to me 200 years later. Though I doubt I could do it every day, I would very much love to have had dinner with the Austins. Anyway, after dinner, the women huddled together in one room for some more sewing or embroidery. It was during these times, apparently, that Jane would read aloud from her books. It was important that they gather in one room because you'd burn fewer candles that way. Remember, candles were expensive. So, in amongst this carefully documented evidence of the daily routine of Jane Austen and her household, the question presents itself, when in this routine does she actually get to sit down and write these books that made her so famous? This question has apparently baffled Austen scholars and Janeites for a long time. An account published in a book called J.E. Austen Lee, A Memoir of Jane Austen and Other Family Recollections, contains this description of Jane's writing habits. Quote, She was careful that her occupation should not be suspected by servants or visitors or any persons beyond her own family party. She wrote upon small sheets of paper, which could easily be put away or covered with a piece of blotting paper. There was, between the front door and the offices, a swing door which creaked when it was opened but she objected to having this little inconvenience remedied because it gave her notice when anyone was coming, end quote. There's also this account written by Jane's niece, Marianne. Jane would, quote, sit quietly, working, meaning sewing, beside the fire in the library, saying nothing for a good while, and then would suddenly burst out laughing, jump up and run across a room to a table where pens and paper were lying, write something down, and then come back to the fire and go on quietly working as before, end quote. Being a writer, and especially a novelist, was not a thing that well-brought-up ladies did in England in the second decade. Many of the more pious members of society regarded novels as a source of vice and moral degeneracy, or at best a kind of pointless frivolity. So it's understandable that Austen hid what she was doing from outsiders, though of course the other members of her household knew full well what she was doing and encouraged it. What is clear is that the move to Chawton Cottage in 1809 jump-started Austen back into writing mode. More than a decade had elapsed since she first wrote her novels, and already the style of the novel was changing, shifting out of the strict epistolary format into something a little more dynamic. It's to Jane's credit that she changed with the times, and the novel she worked on throughout 1809 and 1810, which was now called Sense and Sensibility, was in third-person prose and not the letter format in which it was originally written. In the winter of 1810, Jane's brother Henry wrote to the London printer Thomas Egerton, you remember him, 
he published James Austin's journal, The Loiterer, more than 20 years before, and Henry offered him Sense and Sensibility. This was a bit of a change for Egerton, who published mostly military-themed books. But the deal was that the book was, as they said in the publishing business at the time, on commission. That meant that Egerton's printing house would publish the initial run of copies, 750, for a total expense of 180 pounds sterling. He'd take a cut of the profits, but if the books failed to sell, Jane and Henry would owe the publisher that 180 pounds, or however much of it was in the hole. A whoops scratch that Henry, who was a banker, would be on the hook for it. Jane was broke, and she couldn't afford 180 pounds. Jane had tried previously to get her work into print, numerous times in fact, but when Egerton accepted the deal, it vindicated her years of work and her craft. She couldn't publish under her own name, of course. The author of Sense and Sensibility was credited simply as a lady. The book was to be published in three volumes priced at 15 shillings each. If you could find a set of the original first edition run of Sense and Sensibility today, you could retire to the Riviera. Sense and Sensibility took a long time to come out. Austin sent it to the Egerton Printing House in January 1811, but it wasn't ready until October. The success or failure of the book, though, depended on how many people knew about it, and whether the reviews were any good. At the end of October 1811, a newspaper called The Star ran a small ad for Sense and Sensibility, and another paper picked it up the next day. A couple of months later, a positive review appeared in a magazine called Critical Review, and another one in The British Critic. A slow start, but it picked up. Within a few months after that, the whole first-run print of the book had sold out, and Jane, not Henry, pocketed the profit of £140, which was a pretty nice sum for an anonymous writer in the 18-teens. Jane and Henry ordered a second print run of Sense and Sensibility in October 1813. That run didn't sell out as the first one had, but it almost didn't matter. Jane Austen was now a published author, and the public seemed to like her work. Among modern Janeites, Sense and Sensibility is apparently regarded as the runt of Jane's literary litter, the least favorite of the fans, but it was a good book to start with, being as it was the most conventional of the three novels locked in Jane's writing desk. The initial success of Sense and Sensibility in 1811 and 1812 gave Jane renewed confidence. She broke open the writing desk and took out another of her old manuscripts, the one written in 1796 called First Impressions the story of the plucky middle-class heroine Elizabeth Bennet and her rise to love and marriage with the aristocratic Mr. Darcy. We, of course, know this book as Pride and Prejudice, but between the time Jane had originally written it and 1812 when she was heavily revising it, another novel called First Impressions had already come out. Although the basics of the story were obviously there long before, it seems pretty clear that the real fire that made Pride and Prejudice so enduring in our own culture came together in this second rewrite, or however many rewrites it was, we can't be sure. Just a personal aside here, I'm definitely a bibliophile, and I've loved books all my life. I view them not just as great stories, but as time capsules. So many times when I read a book, I wonder about the circumstances surrounding the first time the author put those specific words down on a page, what the weather was like outside their window, what time of year it was, what else was going on on the day they wrote it. So consider again the opening lines of Pride and Prejudice. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Jane Austen probably wrote those words in 1811 or 1812. We can't be sure, almost nothing of her original manuscripts has survived into archives and museums. But it's fascinating to think about what was going on during the time, perhaps even the very day, 
that Jane Austen wrote that. She was working on Pride and Prejudice just as the United States was declaring war on Great Britain. While she was scribbling on her little pieces of paper, Captain Charles Bernard, the seal hunter profiled in Episode 5, was marooned on a desolate South Atlantic island. Chances are very good that Jane Austen wrote some portion of Pride and Prejudice on the very day that Napoleon's Grand Armée crossed the Neiman River to begin the invasion of Russia in June 1812. None of these events are captured by her words, but they're sort of behind the words, represented somewhere in the time when they were written. Think of everything that was going on in the world while she was writing the story, which itself is part of the story of the world at that time. I love thinking about stuff like this. In the autumn of 1812, while Napoleon's army was retreating in frozen agony from Moscow, Jane and Henry made another deal with the publisher Thomas Egerton for Pride and Prejudice. The terms were much better than the commission she got for Sense and Sensibility. This time, Egerton bought the copyright to the book outright. Jane wanted £150 for it, but they settled on 110 There was no risk this time to Jane if the book bombed, and she had the £110 at hand, but what she'd really done was to sell one of the hottest literary properties in the entire English language for virtually a song. Egerton suspected he had a bestseller on his hands, and unlike Sense and Sensibility with its two measly newspaper ads and a couple of reviews, this time he decided to market the book like crazy. He also cut corners on the cost using cheaper paper and jacked up the price. A copy of Pride and Prejudice sold for 18 shillings, three shillings more expensive than the previous book. The quote that opened this episode describes Jane Austen's excitement at taking delivery of the first box of copies of Pride and Prejudice, which she got in her hot little hands on January 27, 1813, the same time as the general public did. Copies started flying off the shelves, aided by a positive review in the magazine Critical Review. The first run of Pride and Prejudice sold out in a couple of months. Eggerson quickly rushed a second run into production in October 1813, and now he wanted to make a deal to publish Jane's next three books. She was already cranking out another one, Mansfield Park, which she'd begun planning as early as 1811. Stylistically, though, Jane Austen was facing a crossroads. Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice were both sort of sardonic reboots of the sentimental novels popular in the 1790s. And, as you recall, both of them were originally written in that period, or at least the early versions were written then. By 1813-1814, the novel as a literary form had evolved considerably, and the reading public's tastes had changed. Austen's great forte as a writer was to mock that sentimental style in kind of a subtle but incisive way. She was less sure of herself in venturing into the Romantic style, which is where English literature was going in 1813, thanks in part to another character we've seen on Second Decade, Lord Byron. Yes, he was a poet, not a novelist, but his effect on what the written word was doing in the Second Decade can't be underestimated. Jane was also starting to become cognizant of her competition. Sir Walter Scott was, in this period, starting to move from poetry to prose. She didn't like him, commenting, Walter Scott has no business to write novels, especially good ones. You can sense a kind of jealousy there at a competitor poised to horn in on her market share. In other words, she just couldn't hope to poop out clones of her previous books and expect them to do as well. Mansfield Park, then, is kind of a departure for Jane Austen. I'm taking that on faith for the literary critics and historians, because to be honest, I haven't read very much of it. What I do know is that the book was finished in the summer of 1813, and the publication process was afoot by early in the next year. There's an account of Jane and Henry Austen reading proofs of the book in a carriage as they were traveling up to London in March 1814. 
just thinking about that makes me queasy. I get sick trying to read in a moving car, and as rough as the roads were in the second decade, and as bouncy and unpleasant as carriage rides were at that time, that can't have been fun. Mansfield Park came out in May 1814. Things seemed to be looking up. Napoleonic Wars were over, or at least it seemed that way, a hundred days and Waterloo were still in the future, and Jane was coasting through her most productive period, having now written still another novel, this one called Emma. The first run of Mansfield Park was 1,250 copies, and they sold out within six months. Austin raked in over 300 pounds profit, making her one of the most well-paid writers in England. It was even said that the Prince Regent, future George IV, had copies of her books by his bedside. No one knew her name because the books were still published as A Lady, or, more mysteriously, Lady A. But the English-speaking world was already going gaga over Jane Austen. At this point, with her newfound success, Jane was thinking that the deal with Thomas Egerton was less favorable than she deserved. Instead of just forking over Emma to him, she went to London in the fall of 1814 to negotiate a new publishing contract, this time with John Murray, a much more prestigious publisher than Egerton and his military books. Murray, incidentally, was the publisher of her rival, Walter Scott, and also of Lord Byron. Originally, Murray offered Jane a lump sum of £450 for the copyright of Emma and the others that she still owned, meaning Sense and Sensibility and Mansfield Park. Jane refused, and they started to haggle over the terms by which she would accept some of the financial risk of the new books, but also a greater reward. Unfortunately, Jane's stay in London was greatly prolonged when her brother Henry, who up to this point had been her literary agent and essentially partner, fell ill. She shuttled back and forth between Chawton and London to nurse him. During her time in London, Henry's doctor, Matthew Bailey, who was also the doctor that the Prince Regent, learned from Henry that his sister was the mysterious Lady A whose novels the Prince liked so much. In November 1815, at the Prince's request, she visited his library at Carlton House, and the Prince invited her to dedicate a book to him. Eventually, she wrote a hasty dedication of Emma to the corpulent Prince, who in another couple of years would be King George IV. Jane Austen returned to Chawton in December 1815, and that same month John Murray's printing house published the first edition of Emma. Austen was already working on her next novel, Persuasion. She didn't know it, but this period, the beginning of 1816, was the beginning of the end for Jane Austen. Murray's first edition of Emma, anticipating huge sales, ran to 2,000 copies, but Jane Austen's new book had some unexpected competition in the form of Jane Austen. As part of the deal she'd made with Murray, Austen agreed to put out a second edition of Mansfield Park, which came out in February 1816. With two books out there competing for much the same readership, for Jane it turned out to be a wash. Emma was a commercial and critical success, but the profits of that book were cancelled out by the losses on the second edition of Mansfield Park. Jane cleared a profit of, on Emma of only £38.13. shillings. This wasn't the only reverse. Henry, who'd only just regained his health, went bankrupt in 1816. The financial ripples of this spread outward through the whole Austen family. 1816 and 1817 were lean years in England, thanks in part to the post-war slump following the peace with Napoleon, and the environmental effects of the cold decade, the temporary volcanic climate change that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Then, in the spring of 1816, Jane's own health began to decline. Though not sickly by any means, her health up till now hadn't exactly been perfect either. For years, she'd had trouble with her eyes, complaining of pain and eye strain, 
and she wore glasses that she kept in an embroidered case. She also appeared to have had neuralgia, causing terrible pain in her face and teeth. She had a particularly bad bout of it in July 1813 during a visit to her brother at Chawton House. But now, 1816, the pains were getting more severe. She suffered from terrible pain in her back and knees. She started to grow weak and had to lie down a lot. Apparently, she rarely used the sofa at Chawton Cottage, preferring to leave it for her elderly mother. Instead, she'd line up three chairs in a row and lie down on that, not very comfortable. In May 1816, her sister Cassandra took her to the spa at Cheltenham. Taking the waters was now a famous cure for just about anything in the early 19th century. It didn't work. Her slow decline continued after they returned, made worse by the financial disaster of Henry's bank failure and Cassandra being away periodically. Jane Austen is one of those figures who invites retrospective diagnoses, a kind of historical parlor game which I don't find very diverting most of the time. One of the potential diagnoses is Addison's disease, an affliction of the adrenal glands. John F. Kennedy had this condition. But apparently a lot of Jane Austen scholars dispute that conclusion. It's also been suggested that she had Hodgkin's disease, which is pretty horrible. All we know is that she was ill a long time, with recurring cycles of worsening and improvement. She continued to try to write. In 1816 and 1817, she was working on revising an old book, Susan, which would eventually become Northringer Abbey, and she completed a new one, Persuasion, in August 1816. It was half the length of Mansfield Park. In January 1817, she began work on the final novel, which she never finished, called Sanditon. This book, tellingly, was about the business of health spas, the whole taking the waters thing, which hadn't been working out for her too well. Austin's sardonic and satirical instincts were coming to the forefront again. But as her health worsened, she became unable to work. She quit writing on March 18th, 1817. By mid-April, she was bedridden, and on April 27th, she wrote out her will. It was pretty clear to everyone in the Austin family that she wasn't going to last much longer. Pretty soon, it was obvious that Chawton didn't have the medical resources to support her in her final days. Jane's brother James and his wife Mary sent their carriage to bring Jane and Cassandra up to Winchester Hospital outside London. She would not actually go into the hospital. Its wards were for the indigent only. The concentration of doctors and medical students who worked at the hospital meant that if they lived near it, Jane could get some degree of reliable care. Jane and Cassandra rented a flat at number 8 College Street, not far from the hospital. It was a small place, and Jane missed her beloved country cottage. Jane took to her bed. The doctors came and went, as did various family members who were now convinced that each visit would be their last. On June 19th, Jane's brother, Charles Austin, wrote, quote, I saw her twice and in the evening, for the last time in this world as I greatly fear, the doctor having no hope of her final recovery. End quote. Eventually the family stopped coming. They'd already said their goodbyes. Cassandra, Jane's sister, remained by her side, as did one of her sisters in law, Mary. They were there during the long night of july seventeenth and eighteenth. At four thirty AM on july eighteenth, eighteen seventeen, Jane Austen stopped breathing. She was forty one. Jane's last novels, Persuasion and Northanger Abbey, were published posthumously by John Murray in December 1817. It was not until this double edition, which came out after Jane Austen was dead, that her name was publicly associated with the books she'd written. In the next few years, that Jane Austen fell gradually into obscurity. Her literary fame blipped upward in 1833 when new editions of her work were published, but it really wasn't until the 1870s that the real gestalt of Jane Austen began to be recognized and celebrated. 
Cassandra, Jane's sister, remained unmarried for the rest of her life. Supposedly, she burned about two-thirds of the voluminous letters she exchanged with Jane. That happened in 1843, two years before her own death. Why Cassandra did this is not known, except it appears that, as Jane's star ascended, the family was pretty keen on controlling how their famous relative was remembered. The letters that did survive are the primary sources we have about Jane Austen's life. The other Cassandra, Jane's mother, lived with her daughter and Martha Lloyd at Chawton House for another ten years, until her own death in 1827. Henry, who was instrumental in getting Jane's works reprinted in the 1830s, lived until 1850. Edward, the rich one who owned Chawton House, finally croaked in 1852. As we well know, Jane herself has lived on in our culture and literature like almost no one else from the second decade. The world she painted for us in her vivid books, a world of grand manor houses, beautiful gardens, smart young women on the make, and landed gentlemen at the height of a genteel aristocracy. This is what most of us imagine when we think of British high society in the early 19th century. Without Jane Austen, what would the A&E channel have to remake and broadcast repeatedly for 35 years? not lavish adaptations of Walter Scott novels. Without Jane Austen, would Colin Firth be a household name, or more precisely, an iconic image of romance, coming up out of that pond in a linen undershirt in the quintessential TV adaptation of Pride and Prejudice? Without Jane Austen, there would be a pretty big hole in the literary culture of the English language. A smart, simple, and talented girl, a rector's daughter who scraped most of her life for money, a spinster who wrote so glowingly about marriage but never married herself, the truth is that if Jane Austen's story hadn't happened in real life, some English novelist would have had to invent her. Now that's meta. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor. Leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash Munger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. I don't use Twitter anymore. Remember, I have a book coming out this summer, The Warmest Tide, How Climate Change is Changing History, and I'm back at work on the Second Decade book called Second Decade, The Long Dawn of the 19th Century. I'll have more on those upcoming books in a future episode. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech. Com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. My historical sources for this episode include Jane Austen at Home, a biography by Lucy Worsley, St. Martin's Press, New York, 2017. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.